Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Nori Podcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change, and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see, but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am the lead strategist at the Nori Carbon Removal Marketplace. Two colleagues joining me today for another DAC episode, which uh, very happy to be talking direct air capture in greater detail. A lot of movement on that front, so there's uh, quite a lot to talk about. Christoph Jospe, uh, podcaster emeritus. I don't like that term, Christoph. You still come on a fair amount, but Christoph is the chief development officer at Nori. Hey, Christoph. I'm here for your DAC up, Ross. You you are my DAC up. That's right. <laughs> Alden is also DAC up over here. Um, Alden Donnelly, Director of Carbon Economics at Nori. Hey, Alden. Hi, good to be here. Uh, happy to have you. John Larson is joining us today. He's the Director at Rhodium Group and leads the firm's U.S. power sector and energy systems research. He is also a non-resident senior associate in the National Security and Energy Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for being here, John. Thanks for having me, guys. It's my pleasure. And we had to get you on because we saw this latest report and uh, associated webinar that happened with it called Capturing New Jobs and New Business, Growth Opportunities from Direct Air Capture Scale-Up. Very interested in this link between jobs and direct air capture. Maybe we'll start by taking a step back. What is Rhodium? What is your interest in the carbon removal sector? And what led to this report? Sure. Uh, yeah. So Rhodium is a independent research firm. We do a lot of work on big global disruptive trends that be, can mean a lot of different things. It can mean the rise of China and, and uh, other developing countries and what that means for global trade flows and, and economic and geopolitical interests. It's one side of our shop. Another side of our shop works on one of the most uh, disruptive trends out there, which is climate change, where we do a lot of research and analysis on quantifying the impacts of climate change, as well as uh, solutions to it through um, energy market uh, analysis, technology analysis, and assessing climate policy. So you asked me how how did you know we uh, get to this report? So we've been looking at direct air capture now for about two to three years uh, as a technology of interest, uh, where we've been doing. We at Rhodium have been doing work for a long time now that uh, asking our clients keep asking, well, what what are the technologies we're going to need, the energy system changes we're going to need, the policy actions we're going to need to reduce emissions to some meaningful target. That target keeps getting more and more ambitious and sooner and sooner as, as time goes on and the urgency gets more pressing here to get U.S. emissions down to net zero. Now is kind of where we're focused. And we had two philanthropic clients come to us uh, a few years back and say, we really want you to take a close look at direct air capture and really take the time to quantify where the state of the technology is now. Is it important to a net zero solution in the United States by mid-century? And if so, how important? 
and uh, what are the policies to start getting director capture down the road to mainstream deployment, if that's the case. So that was a piece of work we did called Capturing Leadership, which came out uh, last year. And I'm having to talk more about that in a second. But but this new work we did on capturing new jobs and capturing new business focused on the employment opportunities and business opportunities associated with director capture scale up. And when I talk about director capture scale up, I mean at the the size and pace required for director capture to play the role we see it potentially playing in a net zero U.S. economy. John, I'm going to throw you a curveball before we talk about the report, because it's not every day that we invite someone on who works for a group that is also a chemical element, let alone one that's used in catalytic converters, which are really, really cool. But why rhodium? What does that name inspire in the work that your group does? Uh, I wouldn't read too far into it. The founding partners of rhodium, when when the firm was founded back in 2008, were um, Dan Rosen and Trevor Hauser. And when you put those together, that's RH, which is the... Uh, elemental, you know, the, the periodic table symbol. Um, and then, you know, you put the G up in the corner there to make it look like you, you know, we belong on the, on the periodic table. And that kind of puts it all together right there. Oh man. I'll yeah. I'll... Sorry to let you down. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. All right. So I guess we should talk about the report. So what, what was in the report? We asked some big questions. I mean, so director capture, as you guys know closely, and probably your listeners, is a new technology, right? Like it, we see it as like right on, it's commercial ready, it's ready to go, it's ready for scale up. But we don't, there is no like direct air capture industry at any kind of scale compared to other energy industries associated with the energy system that you know and love, like the oil and gas industry or the electric power industry or anything like that, right? So it's hard to fully get people who've never heard about director capture report before to understand in a tangible way what's in it for them and what it could mean for either their business or their constituencies or for their members of their labor unions or anything like that and so we we dove deep into the technoeconomics of director capture looked across all the different technologies that are out there now and did the first of a kind analysis of, okay, if you were going to build a megaton scale director capture plant, how many jobs are we talking? You know, what kind of jobs are they? Uh, what industries are they in? And found that for a typical, which they're, you know, still kind of a, I'll put that in air quotes, DAC plant, you're going to get, uh, you generate about 3,400 jobs per plant, which is not small. That's roughly on the same order as a large scale coal carbon capture retrofit project, similar job numbers there, just to keep put it in context, or similar to a medium scale natural gas combined cycle plant construction. So you're talking really big infrastructure investments here. Beyond that, on the on the business side, we found that if, you know, as you scale up director capture out to kind of the several hundred million metric tons of deployment or even gigaton scale by mid-century, as we have projected may be needed, to help the U.S. get to net zero, you can see not only very large employment opportunities associated with that as you you know you just start doing the math, 3,400 jobs per plant, and we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of plants. But also uh, on the on the business side, there's really specialized equipment that goes into these plants to make them run. There are uh, companies in America and elsewhere that make that equipment, um, and this would be a new growth opportunity for them. Same thing with the steel and cement needed to build these plants. 
Same thing with the energy needed to run the plants. Uh, there are major upsides for the electric power industry, in particular for, for clean electric generation, as well as potentially for natural gas if some of these direct air capture plants are run on natural gas. So we quantified some very large business opportunities, in some cases bigger than the existing industry today when it comes to how big of a demand direct air capture could play for, say, equipment by mid-century. So um, it's really exciting. We've gotten a lot of uh, great interest and feedback from the work. I see it being super relevant going forward. If we find ourselves in 2021 in the U.S. in a real kind of economic stimulus conversation, uh, I think the kind of job and opportunity numbers we've quantified could be a really compelling reason to make some new kickstart investments in, in DAC deployment. So I think there's a, a lot to look at here. So, so I have a question. I wonder if you could um, maybe outline your policy recommendations. And I apologize if this is really clear in documentation I just haven't read yet. But when, when I look at your presentation, it looks like you're saying that DAC is, is, is ready to go. It's commercially viable now. But it needs a carbon price of $242 a ton. And right now, between 45Q, the federal tax credit, and the California statewide programs, uh, basically the typical DAC plant you're, you're looking at if all of the carbon it draws down is stored, qualifies currently for about $86 a ton in um, taxpayer-funded credits. So I look at that, then I look at another slide which suggests that of that potential of 690 to 2.3 billion tons per year, DAC plants could draw down almost 95% of that capacity in your forecast is built after 2035. So my question is, what are you really asking for? Are you asking for 45Q tax credits for DAC to be bigger than they are now? Or are you seeing a different combination of policies transition? I guess what I'm saying, I totally get that there are a lot of potential jobs here. And of course, by definition, if a strategy is going to employ a lot of people, it's also going to be expensive. And I'd love to hear the policy path forward so I could see who's paying at what time. Yeah, it's a great question, Alden. And uh, a lot of this is covered in our in our previous report, Capturing Leadership, which came out last year. And I'm happy to kind of walk through the high-level points there. All of the observations you made are are important ones, and the key thing here, I mean, there's, the the answers are are kind of complicated. We, I think, it's useful to look at this in a near term versus long term perspective, right? So, a lot of the numbers you just pointed to are very much reflective of the near term current situation for direct air capture in the United States and probably elsewhere with regard to eligible policy support from the low carbon fuel standard in California, and then 45Q tax credit. First and foremost, and the key thing here is director capture is ready to go, but the first one is going to be more expensive than the 10th one and the 100th plant. This happens with any early stage technology that the first few are always going to be expensive for a lot of reasons. One, never built one before. Two, it's hard to get financing for something you've never built before. Three, it's hard to find specialized labor for something you haven't built before that, that performs it the way you planned, right? So there's like lots of different issues there. And all those numbers you, you mentioned uh, reflect that first plant value. The first and foremost thing to think about is the near-term policy need, which is we need, the goal here is to start building stuff. We need to build as many 
plants, preferably of varying technological designs, different applications, as much as you can, as quickly as you can, to start to build expertise, start to build supply chains, start to drive down the costs in this technology, because you're not going to get that other 95% of the capacity we're showing at any kind of level of cost effectiveness if you don't start getting the cost down now. So the policies for that are uh, could be varied. Um, we see kind of a mix of supply and demand side policies. On the supply side, you could see an additional, say, tax credit, like an investment tax credit for direct air capture, where the taxpayer could write off, say, 30% of the capital cost of a plant right off the bat. And that way, all the other policy support that you just mentioned can be leveraged more because you know you have less capital to pay off. That can be coupled with important procurement policies. In particular, we see government procurement as a really big, exciting opportunity. Uh, there are already multiple applications of director capture through contracts with the Department of Defense to make, say, jet fuel in remote locations on aircraft carriers. We see a huge opportunity to go way further than that, both on fuel production, but also just like better scaling director capture there. You could see in a different administration that cares about solving climate change, uh, government procurement of actual carbon removal. That, uh, again, could be another supply side way to pull DAC into the market. And with that, you know, you could have competitive bidding for, for RFPs for DAC so there'd be healthy competition to try to drive down the costs as well. So there's a lot of different opportunities there. Separate from that is kind of what we see as the non-cost barriers to director capture, which are also important barriers to carbon capture generally, particular streamlining and reducing the, the permitting uncertainty and permitting timelines with geologic storage um, is pretty important. Right now, well permits for geologic storage injection take on order of five to six years. That's a really easy way to not attract investment. And we get to change that. So, you know, you could throw a lot of new money at direct air capture and storage and not get very far if you don't fix that problem. So all of those types of things need to change. And, and again, if we're in a kind of economic stimulus conversation, you could see a lot of new federal money come into the space to help catalyze that deployment, either through, through deployment grants or loan guarantees. There's lots of other ways you could see that playing out. In the long run, and again, all of that is there. All of that action is all about getting steel in the ground and driving down the cost. It's not, it's not about getting to like a gigaton of scale. That's just this near-term kind of early stage deployment pathway where we're getting into the tens of millions of tons of capacity. From there, you're going to need some comprehensive climate policy framework. That's the longer-term answer. And that can take all sorts of different forms. It can be a carbon tax, it be cap and trade program, it could be clean electric standard plus a clean fuel standard plus a clean product standard for industry where direct air capture and carbon removal can qualify as eligible crediting for compliance across all those pathways. There's lots of different ways to do this. You could also, and this is something we outline in the report, is have some sort of federal carbon removal agency, which is solely responsible for getting CO2 out of the air and keeping it safely underground at the scale we're talking about and basically acts as a publicly public like waste management utility. There are, there are any number of ways to, to go on that front. Uh, we don't need any of those things tomorrow for DAC to scale. We need these kind of early short-term actions, but eventually we're going to need this broader framework. So I have another question. If we're thinking $242 a ton is sort of the price they currently need to, uh, to attract setting aside who pays it, have you had a chance to form an opinion 
about how much that price can change over time with scaling up or is that is it too early to yeah well so so two th- two things to note that is the median first plant cost okay. so so we do have a range in the in the report as far or that's based on the median that's kind of the delta needed to get to the median cost at a break even rate so we do some technologies and energy configurations may come in lower, some may come in higher than that. So that's that's the first thing to say. But the second thing to say is we actually see if you get to the kind of on the deployment paths that we are talking about in all of the reports we've put out, where you're going from, you know, a nascent industry today to hundreds of millions, if not gigaton, a gigaton of scale in 30 years, we can see the cost come, the levelized cost come down from... Uh, so the full range, Alden, is 125 to 325 per ton today. And we see that coming down to as low as, call it the high 40s to $40 a ton to about $145 a ton by 2050. That's, that's useful. Yeah. I mean, it's a big, and this is a big change. And most of that cost reduction happens early, right? Like the you know, it, it's it's kind of, you know, the, the learning curve has exponential gains early early on in the game, right? So like you can really cut costs by 20 to 30% by going from zero to say 10 million tons of capacity. That would be a huge, huge step forward if we can get there. So I just have one more question that was sort of niggling at me when I watched you, when I, when I looked at your presentation and that is when I, when I look at that scenario in 2050, it suggests that your modeling says that electricity sector emissions will be by 2050 less than 10% of what they are today, but the industrial process emissions, so the same sectors, steel, you know, cement, all of those, those key inputs into DAC are still going to be 70% of today's levels in 2020. So when I look at those numbers, it sort of like, looks like we're building DAC to offset the emissions of the industries that are vibrant because we're building DAC. At what point uh, do we shift from all ratepayers and taxpayers should be paying to build DAC to offset the emissions, at least some of which um, arise from the demand to build DAC. And at, at what point can and will those emitting industrial sectors be able to charge high enough prices for the products they produce to be financing DAC privately? Yeah, I mean, so so a couple things to think about there. So the first thing is the director capture deployment targets that we put out for 2050 are in the context of a broader set of energy system and economy-wide energy system modeling that we did that took into account lots of other decarbonization actions across the energy system over time out to 2050, such as really high levels of electrification of end uses, you know, so that everybody's driving an EV by 2050, for example, and all buildings are electric. Carbon capture is deployed at scale and widely in both the electric power and industrial sectors so that all that carbon from steel production, for example, and cement is captured. You've got uh, an electric power sector that is effectively completely decarbonized, mostly through a combination of four things, uh, three things, renewables, natural gas with CCS, and then nuclear. In other words, you got to do all the things, all the experts say you got to do to decarbonize, and you're still going to need a lot of direct air capture. And the flip side is true, and I think answers the other part of your question, which is if you don't, then all that direct air capture is going to have way less of a helpful return, right? Because you're going to also be 
you, you know, if you're, if you're stimulating demand for steel and cement because you're building direct air capture, then all of a sudden, uh, and you haven't decarbonized those, those industrial activities separately, then you're going to have even more tons to offset through CDR, right? And so that gets into a very long, perhaps never ending cycle that's not, not necessarily where we want to be. And so I think what our work shows is that director capture is going to be an, needs to be an essential part of any comprehensive response to climate change, but it's not the only thing we got to be doing. And we've got we've to kind of hit it out of the park on all these different fronts, including industrial decarbonization, or else we're just not going to get to the low carbon economy everybody's talking about. I guess I just have one more question and then I'll stop. And I just want to reiterate, we and Nori are fans of DAC. In fact, our three original founding partners initially came up with the Nori concept to support DAC. So don't take my questions to, to, to mean anything else. But the other sort of last question I, I struggle with is in your modeling, you're assuming by 2050, as you just suggested, uh, carbon capture and storage is big. Natural solutions is big. We've taken fossil fuels entirely under out of space heating and, and, uh, and, and water heating and gone all electric. Are you envisioning in, in your modeling, are you envisioning is it comparable subsidies or government incentives per ton CO2 equivalent reduced or sequestered in all of all of the very different ways you see being implemented or or is DAC special in and getting a subsidy that nobody else gets? That's a great question. And if so great why? question. So for that modeling in particular, when asking the question, how much direct air capture might we need to get to a certain target? And what we did was we basically set an emissions constraint and then said, model solve it, you know, figure out the optimal mix of all these things to get there. So that's another way of saying there, there is a consistent incentive across the energy system for all technologies. And then they get deployed in response to that incentive. So, so director capture is seeing the same value of CO2 in those scenarios as, say, decarbonizing industry or electric power or, you know, decarbonizing fuel production for hydrogen and things like that. So I've dominated. I didn't mean to. Sorry. Somebody else take over. <laughs> Alden, we're... You're on a roll, Alden. We just want to let you let you go at it. I think Christoph has stuff to, to go on there, too. I, I mean, it's kind of like thinking about policy. You want to start with the end in mind, I think. Or you don't want to put up certain constraints, but you also don't want to over-prescribe. One of the things that I loved in my DAC education working under Klaus Lackner was this beautiful concept that it could theoretically scale limitlessly in its technology that you know could, as you rightly put, John, is play that waste management service, kind of play the cleanup crew in the suite of all the decarbonization options. But if I'm understanding Alden's questioning, you know, you don't want to build policies that play favorites. And so I'm just wondering, you know, you have a long, illustrious career of thinking through climate policy solutions. Across the course of your career, what are the biggest lessons you've seen of what works or what doesn't work? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I, I think there's lots of different objectives in climate and energy policy. The number one objective is solving climate change. But when you get to trying to answer that question and solve that problem, you get into all these derivative situations with with separate, more discrete objectives. And I think my, my response earlier to the like long-term versus short-term for DAC is a good one, right? Like in the long run, we want net zero. 
in the US. And, you know, ideally in a way that's as least cost to get there as possible. When we have Rodium asked that question, turns out director capture plays a relatively prominent role, more than I would have expected going in. I'll just say that. And then, but the thing is, if you don't have director capture technology ready, uh, you know, on the shelf and ready to go with supply chains and, and an industry behind it to really scale it went to the level that we're showing, then you're not going to get to that net zero or least cost world. So then you get into a different objective question of, well, then how do we get DAC down that road? And that's where these kind of near-term policy actions, where you you do start to pick some favorites. Maybe, maybe you know, you might want to be looking at what are the, you know, you don't put all your chips on solid sorbent technology from DAC and you want to be DAC technology agnostic to make sure there's like healthy competition and you're providing lots of opportunities for different companies and, and researchers to get in on the action. At the same time, like we do know we that director capture is not going to scale to the level we need without some support to get it off the ground, right? So so that's that's just one reflection on things. To answer answer your question directly, Christoph, we engage a lot with with folks on Capitol Hill and Hill staffers who are thoughtful about this stuff. And we also engage a lot with our colleagues in the other disciplines like economists and you know social scientists and all those folks. And uh, one thing from engaging with Hill staff that I've heard recently um, and frequently is the most effective climate policy is one that can actually pass, which is maybe different than the answer the economist might give you as far as like what the most effective climate policy is, carbon price, or, uh, you know, one that is um, polls the best and has the most social acceptance. And at the end of the day, this problem is so complex and currently so divisive, unfortunately, politically, that I look around at what's been able to get passed and actually start to drive change on the ground. And those are the areas where I focus as far as like exciting opportunities. And, you know, most of that action in the United States is on the state level. Clean electric standards are now, you know, that get us to 100% uh, zero emitting electricity are pretty popular now in multiple different political, very politically diverse states around the country. That's something to look at. I'll be honest, I've become a convert to the low carbon fuel standard uh, in California. I initially thought that uh, life cycle based regulation would be super complicated, probably too complicated to be administratively feasible. But ARB has done an amazing job of not just proving me wrong, but also showing that it's driving new investment in clean technologies that we all know are going to be important to decarbonizing down the road. I think there's still some open questions around how to do certain decarbonization actions right. Electrification is maybe the big one, electrification of end uses. We have not, I have not seen yet an electrification policy that will drive the kinds of system change we need, given the inertia in consumer behavior and technology preference and uh, and just stock turnover that will get us on the pathway to a full electrification of end uses by mid-century. That tells me we're probably going to need some other options on the table. But that doesn't mean you couldn't come up with that policy, but I haven't seen it yet. And then, you know, I'll say ideally someday we'll have a serious carbon price and that would be really great. But where those have been adopted, they've proven to be super impactful and do all the things that everybody says they can do. But we're not quite there yet here, at least at the federal level in the United States. And that's something to keep an eye on. You know, I I agree and appreciate everything you just said. And uh, I'm on the low carbon fuel standard team, I'd, I'd modify it to make it the low carbon energy standard if I was queen of the world, which I haven't noticed anybody wants me to be. It certainly took me a, a long time to get there. So I, I think we might be kindred spirits in that way. 
when it comes to policy and public acceptance, I still worry not about DAC as, as a solution, but about how we construct the policy. So for example, the modeling says that for DAC to become commercially viable and create all the jobs we're talking about, we will be increasing natural gas production in the United States, which I don't consider a bad thing. But it seems to me that if you're going to the general taxpayers and saying some version of, you've got to phase out your use of natural gas to heat your homes, and you've got to shift to electricity, which all other things being equal is going to cost you more in heating prices, you're also going to have to pay enough taxes to um, offer uh, tax incentives to subsidize the costs that DAC and large industry pays for natural gas. I, that could be a mistake. That could really uh, kill public support for what otherwise is uh, a needed part of the package of solutions. So that's why I keep worrying about what's the combination of policies we're talking about here. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd say, you know, when we get into an honest to goodness legislative conversation about how to solve climate change again, which I look forward to someday, uh, these are definitely the kind of intersections and challenges that are going to come up. There's lots of others, even in the more discrete policy conversations that that we engage in now, say with 45Q and the carbon capture tax credit, the fact that most projects are associated with enhanced oil recovery is 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 another example of a public acceptance challenge on how to, uh, again, stimulate deployment of another important technology here, carbon capture more generally, and some people being, you know, seeing it as just a, a lifeline to fossil fuels rather than a early stage support policy for something we're going to need a lot more of down the road. On the on the gas piece specifically, I mean, I guess you just get asked the question, like, where's, you know, the US in particular is well endowed with a lot of different cheap energy resources, both renewables and turns out natural gas. And, you know, figuring out the best way to tell the story of how to use that, those energy sources in the most um, cost effective way is going to be important. And, and I, I, I agree all that I'm not quite sure uh, the best way to electrify the end uses question and how to talk to folks that way. I think there's actually some really interesting, compelling research around air to indoor air pollution that I think is yet to be socialized. It could be very influential in shifting people to go electric. But at the same time, saying you you can't have your gas here because we need, you know, but we're going to use it over here is 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 something that I think uh, is is something we're going to have to wrestle with. So, John, the Otto von Bismarck quote, I think, policy is the art of the possible. Um, and it's kind of like, we create policy to guide and coax in the ways that we can. But then sometimes there are trends that no one really predicted. And then you just kind of hop on the trend and then create more policy to guide and coax. One of those trends being an abundance of natural gas becoming really cheap and certainly changing the landscape for carbon management. But I really wanted to take your view, stepping back in terms of the trends in clean tech innovation. And it'd be great if you could give some context from a DAC perspective on how you see that driving the DAC action. But it also, just in general, sort of what excites you in the Rhodium Group in terms of where you see the possible, the art of the possible in terms of seeing sort of broad scale climate innovation tech really taking off? Yeah, I mean, I think the electric power sector now is is has been and still remains a really exciting place as a matter of like both technology innovation and and policy in the sense that all of the economic trends market trends are have been pushing the most carbon intensive generation uncontrolled coal plants out of the money 
and pushing renewables and and uncontrolled natural gas into the money. And that has really changed. I mean, you can just look all around. All the major electric utilities now have net zero goals and more coming onto that bandwagon every day. We talked about states earlier and their leadership here. It's a super exciting area, but there, you know, the, how you get to 100% clean is a much harder question to answer than how do you get to like 80 or 85, 90% clean. That last 5, 10, 15% is really, really tricky. The more you constrain your technology options to get to that 100%, let's say just to renewables, for example, the harder and more expensive it's going to be. I think we're just starting to see examples of like on the ground, you know, real projects that can start to prove out how that's all going to play out over the next several decades. Um, oh, and by the way, none of the electrification we're talking about matters if you don't decarbonize electric power, right? So, you know, never hurts to just state that obvious point. So the electric power sectors are prized in some ways, the most exciting area right now. But I would say, and that's an area we've spent a lot of time with and are, and are still focusing on in a big way. Um, and I, I think direct air capture has two potential areas of benefit on that front. One is the more you decarbonize electric power, the more opportunities there are to run DAC plants with great electricity rather than purpose-built renewables or something like that. Uh, which certainly makes deployment easier. The other is um, you could see direct air capture playing a role in helping get electric power sector to net zero emissions by offsetting that last 5-10% if that's the cheapest way to do it with direct air capture and storage, right? Instead of um, just with the generation side of the equation. But I will say we've been spending a lot more time recently in the industrial sector generally on a lot of fronts on, you know, how do you get industrial grade heat, and how do you do fuel substitution for low carbon fuels like hydrogen, but also deployment of carbon capture technology. Um, and I see from our close look at the technology opportunities there, we see a lot of opportunities for cost reduction. Uh, electrolyzer costs have a lot of pathways to get down to make hydrogen cheap, green hydrogen cheap. With carbon capture, we see a lot of low-hanging fruit for CCS deployment, even under the existing 45Q regime in the United States. Um, and even if you just extended the deadline for eligibility by a year or two, you could see a lot more deployment. And that's with just incremental tweaks to policy that could um, really move the needle and really start to scale up some of these technologies. And that's an area we'd want to, you know, I didn't expect we'd be in without a more formal, comprehensive federal climate policy. I think it's a testament to a lot of people's hard work in trying to kind of get some, some base hits over the last few years on a bipartisan basis in Congress. Anyway, I just see a lot of room to run in the industrial sector, and it just turns out that that that's the sector everybody says is the hardest to decarbonize. So I, I see a lot of excitement there. Um, I mean, it's still early days, so I wouldn't say it's hope yet, but uh, there's a lot of a lot of reasons to pay attention. So implicit in what you're saying is there's there's a pathway to get there, right? It's some kind of hundred percent commercialization yep. pathway, and when we're talking about pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or capturing carbon dioxide at industrial sources, it begs the question, what are you going to do with it? And I would be curious to hear your take on what are the most promising commercialization pathways that will get us from here to there? I think there's so many different uncertainties that it's going to be a mix of a lot of things. Now, I think back to our, like, you get a set of objectives when you're talking about policy. I think the first objective, in my view, on this is the same one I've had for DAC, which is what's, what's the early stage goal? The early stage goal is getting this stuff deployed as much as possible and getting the cost down, building experience, getting supply chains built out. 
building an industry around this stuff. And if, and if your goal is that, the pathways, I would say whatever pathways commercialization are available and cost-effective for niche applications or early stage stuff now should be pursued. That can mean anything from, so the, the carbon utilization space, I think, is still really early, but really exciting, um, at least as far as getting things started. So far, our research does not suggest that utilization will be the answer in and of itself, right? Like you're still going to need geologic storage of large amounts of CO2 from these sources that we're talking about to, to get things to decarbonize down the road. But uh, using CO2 for feedstocks into chemicals, into other kinds of products like carbon fiber is exciting, potentially lucrative in certain respects. There's a lot of chemical engineering processes getting explored now that could actually like really cut down, you know, just making, making chemicals in brand new ways using CO2 could really change everything. And I think that's exciting. On top of that, you know, we've seen some activity in the enhanced oil recovery space. I think that's going to continue. I think the low carbon fuel standard approach in California has provided a lot of new interest in carbon capture and other uh, other technologies that's going to continue and could potentially ramp up, not because California ramps up its ambition, but because more states adopt low carbon fuel standards. And I mean, there's active conversations now in states in the Northeast and Midwest, uh, not necessarily copying and pasting California's, but at least taking a similar tech neutral approach. And so I think there's a lot of that. And then in the meantime, I'll just go back to the like recovery and stimulus discussion. I mean, it's like a lot of the stuff we're talking about here are really big projects that could employ a lot of people. And if Congress wanted to devote a big spending exercise to deploying the next wave of all these things, I think it would do a lot to accelerate the technology and and get the economy back on track. You know, I think you're right in principle, but I think there are some cautions we need to just all, all give ourselves. So, so, and the reason I get hung up on is what, what in fact is the mix of policies is that the reality is, is all developed economies need a significant and major stimulus package soon and jobs created has to be an important measure of what are the right places and ways to invest on the one hand. I guess the, the fear I I bring to the table is that it's also the case that all of our governments are seeing exploding federal and state deficits and debt loads increasing. So I do believe that if we actually want DAC and every other new technology uh, we want to see succeed, succeed, we have to from day one assume that the will and the ability of government to maintain taxpayer incentives say five years from now is going to erode when that massive pileup of debt is looking scary. So the, the reason I keep sort of losing sleep over policy is what are the policies we can put in place right now that are going to involve government spending that creates the seed of a set of new industries and employers that can survive when the government money gets chopped out from under their feet in five years. So it's, it's not don't do it, it's how do you do it so that you increase the odds that you've started something that the private sector can carry on when that government debt load gets too much, too big. I, I'd agree and I'd take it one step further, which is in, in particular for carbon removal, we can't count on the private sector to take the baton solely here, right? Because a lot of what we're talking about is a public good, which is inherently economics 101 textbook. This is a role for the government, right? So you you need some sort of... The stimulus is the down payment. You need some sort of long-term 
climate policy framework of some sort, or maybe it's more tech specific or sector specific, but you need a framework that requires additional investment into these areas for the long run and so that the private sector knows there's going to be a market for this stuff. So I totally agree. Like the stimulus is the first step. Uh, it's the down payment. And then we got to follow up with additional actions. Well, John, you've given us a lot to think about here. Is there any place that you would direct listeners to learn more? I suppose the reports that you've put out are a very good place to start. Yeah, check out our work on our website at rhg.com and look uh, look under our research in the energy and climate area. Look for more from us, both on direct air capture, on carbon capture, and on how both relate to any kind of recovery conversation in the coming months. We've got more work coming this space, and my contact info is on the website. So you know, if you get follow up questions, feel free to reach out. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. And thank you to my co-hosts. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. And thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com, where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.